Well, hi, everyone. It's great to be able to share with you today. Last year, a Christian pastor, a Jewish rabbi, and a Muslim theater director all got on a Zoom call together. Now, I know that sounds like the opening line to a peak 2021 joke, doesn't it? But it really happened. I joined with these other two people together to speak at a law firm seminar on faith and well-being in the workplace. And we had a really good time. As, much, and I as I reflected on it afterwards, I realized that what struck me was how much cohesion there was in what was coming out between people of very, very different faiths and who, let's face it, believe fundamentally different ideas about who God is. And who we were a group of people who some would say uh, sit in conflict with one another, are opposite to each other, and really shouldn't engage with one another. Because we live in a culture, don't we, that likes to portray everything as a conflict between sides in which everyone must choose one. And to be honest with you, that's not that much different than it was from biblical times, as we're going to see in our story today. If you have your Bibles with you, we're looking today at uh, John chapter 4, uh, from verses 1 to 30. Uh, it's titled, Jesus Talks with a Samaritan Woman. Now, if you, let's just say, this is a long passage, so if you have your Bible, it would be good to have it open with you so you can follow it. But the verses will come up so you can read the story with me now. But let's have a look. Now, Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now, he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had bought, given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon, the sixth hour. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will, turn, will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go and call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man you have now is not your husband. What you've just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place that where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming where you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is coming for the Jews. Yet a time is coming 
and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshippers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called the Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, am he. Just then his disciples were returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Well, this is quite the story, isn't it? But let's walk our way through this encounter together. And the first thing I notice is that there's a bit of a plot device that happens here, isn't there? Which helps us to explain why Jesus and his disciples are on the move, why they're traveling. They're in Judea baptizing people. John takes pains to point out that it wasn't Jesus who was the one doing the baptizing, but of course they would do, the, his disciples were baptizing with his approval. People are having their lives changed from an encounter with the living God. And this is getting the attention of the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the time. And at this point, really early on in John's gospel, Jesus is still flying low a little bit. He's trying not to attract too much attention. His time has not yet fully come. Which is why that when he starts to get attention for the work that he's doing in the, in the area, he feels he has to leave that place. I also love the little snippet of info that you get there, that they are on their way back to Galilee which is the scene of Jesus' first miracle where he changes water into wine. And what we learn is, is that the theme of these first few chapters of John's gospel is that the kingdom of heaven is starting to break out. It's starting to pop up and make itself visible amongst people. You see it pop up in this episode of Jesus changing water into wine, a miraculous transformation that occurs at a wedding. But it's just a glimpse of everything that is yet to come, which is why in verse 3 they leave the town that they're staying in because he knows that the Pharisees are onto him. And so they travel to Galilee and the verses tell us that Jesus had to go through Samaria. Now that's interesting because Samaria is one of the towns that the Jews would traditionally go around rather than travel through. And it's clear that this journey has some real purpose to it because the town that they end up in and the plot of land where they, 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 they stop at in verses 5 and 6 are historically important to the Jewish nation. You see, Jacob, the grandson of Abraham, the son of Isaac and the father of Joseph, originally bought this land and you can read the story of how that happens in Genesis chapter 33. Joseph, he of the coat of many colours that we all know, was brought home from Egypt uh, and some years later and buried on this same plot of land. But this is the only place in the Bible where we read about the well of Jacob. It's the only place Jacob's well is ever mentioned. And what we now know, uh, what we know as in the biblical area of Samaria is now what we know as the modern day West Bank of Palestine. And it's here that the action of our story takes place. But we need to take a pause for a moment because in order to grasp why this encounter is so significant and such good news for us, we need to understand a little bit about who are the Samaritans. Now, I don't know what you think of when I say Samaritans. If you live in the UK, you might think of the UK-based the UK mental health and emotional support charity, uh, who do amazing work, by the way. 
Perhaps you might think of the parable of the Good Samaritan, which is mentioned in Luke's Gospel, and that that does have some relevance here as well too. But the Samaritans are an ethno-religious race of people who settled in this area going back to the exile of the Jews into Babylon. Now while they worship the same God as the Jews, uh, their history goes back to over 600 years of conflict with the Jewish nation at this point in human history. You see, they have differences with the Jews in matters of theology. For example, they, uh, they've only received the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. And actually, they've actively rejected the Psalms, the Proverbs, the Prophets, and much of the following on Jewish tradition. The, the Samaritans built a temple in a different place to the Jews. They built it on Mount Gerzim. And so later in human history, we discover that the Jews destroy that temple. Samaritans intermarried with the foreigners of the region, which is something that that God expressly forbid the Jews to do. And so it goes on. Throughout history, each side with some level of legitimate disagreement with one another, which has festered over time and has now become generational hate. Now today, we're looking at it with our modern eyes. We might liken their contempt for one another to perhaps the difference between Sunni and Shia Muslims, for example, or perhaps between different Christian denominations, but perhaps with a lot more animosity to it. Now, trying to understand why this disagreement between Jews and Samaritans has gone on for so long means unpacking much of Middle Eastern history, which is not an easy thing to do. But having some sense of the the context of the historical conflict between these two tribes and these two people groups helps us to realize why Jesus' words and his actions are so wonderfully amazing and revolutionary as they were at the time and why there's such good news for us even today. And so we get to Jesus' encounter with the woman by the well. What's the first thing we notice about this literal water cooler moment that he has with this wonderful woman? Well, the first thing that I see is that we read in verse 6 that it tells us it was about the sixth hour or about noon, midday. Midday in the Middle East is hot, isn't it? We're talking about the middle of the desert. It's one of the hottest times of the day. And what we understand from studying history is is that most people would have gone out to fetch water probably in in the early morning or in the later part of the day when it was cooler. And what we also understand is that fetching water, uh, because it was such a physical task, would have been done in social groups. It would have been a social activity done mostly by women. And so they would have gone out in groups together to the well to chat, to engage with one another, to fetch water together, to help one another as they went about their daily labor. And so it's unusual that this woman comes out in the hottest time of the day by herself when no one else is likely to be around. Well, that's significant, but we'll come back to in a moment to exactly why that's the case. You see, it's also significant that Jesus spoke to her, not just because she was a woman by herself, although being a a religious teacher of the day, that would have been grounds enough for Jesus to have given her a wide berth. But when she identifies herself to him directly as Samaritan, that should have been the end of the conversation right there for all of the reasons we looked at before about this context of the Jews and the Samaritans. And notice in verse 9, in order to emphasize that point, John writes, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Other translations say things like, do not use dishes that Samaritans have used. You see, the hatred between the Jews and the Samaritans was so deep that not only would they not have even talked to them, but they wouldn't even use the same cup or plate that they believed a Samaritan had used. Why? Because they believed it would have made them ceremonially unclean. 
Now, this can sound ridiculous to us when we look back into history, doesn't it? Until we examine some of our prejudices and irrational fears of people groups that exist in our culture even today. I think of like when I was a, a child in the schoolyard and we used to joke about getting girl germs if we touched a girl. That's a frivolous example, maybe, but think of what happens today with racism and the Black Lives Matter movement. Think of sexism and the shocking violence being perpetuated against women all over the world by men, even today, even in a culture as tolerant as perhaps the UK claims it to be. And even when we consider the Russian-Ukrainian war, which is currently playing out day by day on our television screens, with one sovereign state seemingly intent on colonizing another sovereign state. And suddenly this attitude doesn't seem so out of place even in our human condition even today, does it? What we learn is, is that Jesus reaches out and comes and actually breaks down racial and gender divides. No wonder his behavior was seen as so shocking to the institutions and leaders of the day. And in the midst of all of this context, not only does he reach out directly to individuals, but he comes offering a truly wonderful gift. You see, the fact that this encounter takes place at Jacob's well is hugely significant. In verse 12, we read that Jacob built this well and provided physical water for himself, his own people, and for the generations to come. It was important that this well was there. But the living water Jesus talks about that comes from a relationship with him is a gift far greater and far more reaching throughout history than any physical well could have been. You see, the Spirit of God brings eternal life and a relationship with a God that had yet to be fully experienced in all its goodness until the coming and fulfillment of Jesus. See, Jesus provides living water that is everlasting, that doesn't run dry and that is truly satisfying, and he's using the connection of the gifts of the past, the gift of Jacob's well, to point towards their ultimate fulfillment in him. It's wonderful. And so this encounter with the woman is going well so far, isn't it? Uh, she says to Jesus in verse 15, please give me this gift of water, I want it. I want what you are offering to me. The woman's interested. You're thinking this is going really well so far. Which is why verse 16 brings such a jarring change of direction in the conversation. Suddenly Jesus asks, starts asking her questions about her intimate personal situation, about her marital life, and you're thinking, Jesus, why are you going there? You won't find this tactic in any evangelism course. But Jesus teases out some of her personal history, and in doing so, reveals the fact that she's been married five times and is now living in a de facto relationship with a sixth man. Why is this important? It's important because this prophetic insight reveals how ostracized this woman probably was from her own community. In a race of people that were hated by the outside world, this poor soul is hated even by her own. That's why she was out fetching water by herself at midday. She didn't want to be seen because she didn't want to encounter the people around her because they despised her because of the way that she lived her life. But look at how Jesus treats her. He doesn't judge her. He doesn't speak harshly towards her. Instead, he's full of love and compassion for her. In fact, he sees more value in her than she sees in herself, given her the backstory of her life. See, she's someone, we realize, who's been longing 
for a lifetime of acceptance and been, frankly, looking for it in all the wrong places. And what does Jesus give her? Jesus gives her personalized revelation and the offer of salvation and genuine peace in her heart. Jesus sees her and knows her and loves her all the same. What we learn from this encounter is that this whole, the whole reason for this trip to go through Samaria, it was about finding this woman. When Jesus in Luke chapter 15 talks about the parable of the lost sheep where the shepherd leaves the, lost, the 99 sheep who are stable and there to go and find the one that is lost, he's not just speaking about this in abstract or metaphorical terms. Here in this encounter we read he actually goes and does it. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that good news for us? Jesus says in Luke 15 verse 6, Rejoice with me, for I have found my lost sheep. He speaks that over the woman, and God wants to speak that over you today. See, this is the result of an encounter with the living God. Andy Tuck reminded us a couple of weeks ago of Jesus' words to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, where he says to Nicodemus, You must be born of water and the Spirit. See, it's not about whether your background qualifies you to be close to God or whether your observance of the law makes you a good person or not. I love that this woman speaks of revelation coming from the Messiah, the Savior that the Jews and Samaritans alike were waiting and longing and hoping for. And in verse 26, Jesus identifies himself to her as this Messiah that she's been waiting for. Now, this is the only time in, Luke's, in John's uh, account of the life of Jesus, that Jesus identifies himself as the Messiah until he gets to his trial and crucifixion at the end of the story. And the fact that the first time and only time until the end that he reveals who he truly is to an outcast woman of a hated sect reminds us that the gospel is for everyone. It's not just for the Jews, it's for Gentiles and for all of us even today. You see, we're being called into spiritual relationship with the one who knows us better than we know ourselves. We're not called to a specific place or a mountain because the mountain doesn't matter anymore. We're not called to worship a deity that we can't fully know and understand. Instead, we're being called into daily friendship with a God who reaches out and breaks down the barriers to find us. With a God who is known to us by the Holy Spirit that he puts inside those who put their trust in him. He freely gives it to all those who ask for it. We're being called into true peace and rest and ultimate fulfillment of everything we might be looking for in life. And see how her response is so beautifully and wonderfully encapsulated in this heartfelt cry, come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? Suddenly, she's not an outcast anymore. She's been brought into the story. She's been included into the family of God. And her shame has been turned into honor. Isn't that something that you want for yourself in your life? So how do we respond? Well, I, I think there are two ways in which we can respond to this fantastic encounter. And I, I suppose I would make the first a challenge to you. When was the last time that you talked to someone that the culture tells you is on the other side of, what you, of who you are and what you believe? What I mean by that is that someone is not in your circle, someone who maybe thinks and believes something very different to what you think and believe. 
Maybe it's people you think somehow must be in opposition to you because of who you are and who they are. Yeah? It might be someone from another faith. It might be someone with no faith at all. Let me give you some examples to help ground this a little. Let's say, for example, if you believe that everyone should be vaccinated in order to get us once and for all out of this COVID crisis that we're in, when was the last time you spoke to someone who believes that vaccination is a personal freedom of choice? Now, I'm not, there's no judgment here on either side, but isn't it so easy for us to become so entrenched in our beliefs and our understanding that we cast those who share views opposite to us as the enemy? If you hold, for example, a biblical view, worldview on biological sex and gender, how many of you have spoken to someone who perhaps holds a more fluid view of gender than you? Here's another example. At my workplace, we often typecast people who work in the other departments as people who don't know anything, as people who couldn't possibly be, be, be as good as us as doing what we do. I sometimes hear feedback from my colleagues and say, those guys are useless, they don't know anything. And I can feel like that sometimes when we're, we're trying to do something and it feels like that department is not helping us in our task. But what if I just went to go and speak to those people instead of assuming their motives? You know, some years ago I was a street pastor. Street Pastors is a wonderful local organisation here in the UK that goes out onto the streets late at night looking for ways to pray, pray for and bless and care for the people who happen to be out on the streets. And we would go uh, and stand out front of nightclubs, we'd be at bus stops and we'd be in all sorts of places and you can imagine on a Friday and Saturday night in town centres when things get a little bit, you know, hectic, when people get a bit drunk and have had a bit too much to drink, how the, the atmosphere in, in those places can change. And regularly we'd be out front of nightclubs and in those places and people would say to us things like, you know, religious people like yourselves, you shouldn't be in this place. No, that's exactly where I should be, bringing the love of God to people who need to experience it for themselves. See, we can so easily define people by what they believe or what they do. And God never does that. Because we can fail to see them as people made in the image of God, loved and de dearly by Jesus, and as people who he desires to bring into relationship with him so that they can experience the living life, living water and eternal life that we enjoy ourselves. And we live in a culture that is quick to polarize and cancel and silence opposing viewpoints. But as Christians, if we believe that the gospel is universal and is for all people, regardless of who they are or what they believe, what we see then is scripture, in scripture is Jesus constantly crossing the cultural divide to reach out to people and proclaim that a new kingdom has come. And so we shouldn't see people as projects to somehow be worked on, but we should see them as people to be known and loved and brought close. So that's one way in which we can respond. And the other way is, is that perhaps you might identify more with the Samaritan woman in this story. Maybe you feel like you're standing on the other side of the divide, like you're an outcast, like you're rejected by people, like God wouldn't want to have anything to do with you because of who you are or because of what you think you've done. Or I don't know your story. But imagine what it would, be look, like, what it would look like in your life to be seen and known and loved by the Messiah, by the one who comes to change everything. This is good news that you don't just have to imagine, but you can experience for yourself today, right now. See, we can all know this joy and depth of relationship and peace with God, 
because he's reaching out to you today. He wants to give you prophetic insight. He wants to show you his love and he wants to bring you his peace if you will accept him in your life today. So let me pray and let's respond to God together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this story that shows us how far you will go to reach out to people who need to know you. Father, I thank you that we all have an invitation to come in to the family of God, that we're not standing on the outside anymore, that we're not the excluded ones, but that we are chosen and known and loved by you. Father, help that truth to really sit in our spirit and our souls and help us to respond to you and to the people around us in a new relational way today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.